Hello, everybody. This is Kim Nicolaitis with uh, Advent Christian Voices once again on um, April 16th, Monday here in Hawaii. And uh, I'm continuing in my study of uh, the Gospel of Luke. Last week, we looked at the introduction, and today I'm going to be looking at the announcement uh, of the birth of John the Baptist and uh, trying to answer a few questions about about John the Baptist. And so, now you recall we spoke about Luke being quite a historian and theologian, and because of that, um, in both cases, he finds it necessary to continue. What he's really doing here is laying the foundation of the um, gospel account. So maybe what I should do is just read that section of scripture that I have in mind, which is Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through uh, 25, I believe it is here. So I'm just going to be reading from the English Standard um, version here. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah in the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. That's a kind way of saying they were old. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the people, or the Lord, rather, a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you didn't believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained moot. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home, and after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So, as I said, Luke uh, gives special emphasis to 
John the Baptist recording. Uh, he's the only one who really does record for us the announcement of his birth, the, the miraculous appearance of the angel Gabriel, and uh, the miraculous birth, really, of John the Baptist. So you might ask, why is it so important to spend so much time on this event as Luke seems to find necessary? And, the, and that's a good question. There are some very good answers, as we shall see. Who, after all, was this man we know simply as John the Baptist, and what was his role in the advent, or the first advent of uh, the Messiah? Well, to fully understand this, we... Um, we have, to, uh, we have to go back into the history of the nation of Israel and see what their real expectations were. And I believe that part of what Luke is trying to show to us here is that there's really nothing new going on in terms of the way God has always been dealing with the nation of Israel all along. In other words, uh, Christianity is not really a new religion. True Christianity is the epitome of everything that has been practiced in accordance with revelation of God, which he's always given to, up until this time, through the nation of Israel from its inception. So the New Testament is not meant to be a replacement of the Old Testament. The New Testament is but a logical continuation of and a fulfillment of everything that was, in fact, written in the Old Testament. Now, Luke, for references of, or for purposes of reference in our account here places this in the days of Herod. And so, and we know that he's referring there to Herod the first, the son of Antipater, who was, had been granted authority by Rome as king of Judea in 30, back in 37 BC, primarily due to the fact that he, both he and his father demonstrated uh, not only loyalty, but skill uh, military skill, at least, to Rome in defeating the Renaissance Parthians who'd regained control of Judea and Syria after they had uh, had been, that territory had been left pretty much by Rome, Rome to run their own affairs <clears throat> under the declining Seleucid kingdom. And there are, in fact, actually no less, I believe, than five Herods referred to in the New Testament, which tends to be a bit confusing at times if they're not kept in their proper Order. So in this case, we're talking about the patriarch of the entire clan, also known as Herod the Great, whose greatness, by the way, was attributed mainly to his uh, military, uh, his administrative and uh, his uh, other skills, particularly in the field, field of construction, having built some rather impressive structures, one of which being none less than the Jewish temple. At least he certainly uh, added to the temple. Despite the favor granted to him by Rome to pretty much reign over Judea in accordance with his own terms and dictates, he was nonetheless extremely paranoid about the potential prospects of uh, having his reign being cut short by some usurper, in part because of his Idumean lineage. Consequently, he also gained much notoriety from the excesses he took in order to secure his position. And to that end, he had his own brother-in-law killed, his own wife killed, and two or three of his own sons. And in fact, of course, he was the he was the same Herod mentioned in Matthew's Gospel, as most of you know, who gave the order to massacre the, all the male infants of uh, Bethlehem when he was already at such an age that it would have been almost impossible for a two-year-old to pose any threat 
to the longevity of his reign. In fact, he died in 4 BC, which was not more than uh, two or three years at the most after Jesus was born. So when Luke refers to Herod here, he knows that his audience would be quite familiar with the reputation Herod had gained for some of these and other atrocities. By the time, in fact, Herod was on the verge of death himself, he knew that his loss would probably not be mourned to any great degree by his citizens. So he, in fact, gave the order to round up all the leading citizens and anybody of any prominence living in Jerusalem at the time and hold them incarcerated until it expired, at which time they were all to be executed, just to ensure that there would be some grief expressed at his departure. So with this backdrop in, in mind, being in the days of Herod, Luke introduces Zechariah simply as certain priest. That is one of some 18,000 or so priests who lived within the surrounding districts of Jerusalem and who ministered daily there at the, tip, at the temple. Obviously, they could not all minister there at once, so they had their labor divided into 24 different groups, and they took turns accordingly, with each group required to spend no more than two weeks per year performing uh, their rituals, apart from the three major annual festivals when all the priests were required for the sacrifices. Judaism, as you recall, is a theocratic religion. That's one where God uh, is supposed to reign as the king, and the priests were his agents here on the earth, and it was their job to administer his reign. So there's some similarities there in the, um, the phrase where we have Zechariah and Herod, Herod mentioned together. Nonetheless, it would be very difficult for anyone anywhere to ever possibly find a greater contrast in personalities as expressed right here between these two individuals mentioned together in this introductory verse to the gospel narrative. On the other hand, you have everything that's represented by all of, or rather on the one hand, you have everything represented by all the forces of the most intense darkness ever found in the world, combined and personified, personified, I should say, uh, at a time when darkness reigned. It had, in fact, been reigning for a long time. Or at least it would seem, from every perspective, but darkness is always perceived as being the greatest just before the break of dawn. And as this verse expresses so well, that darkness was apparently not quite able to extinguish entirely the light which continued to shine and to burn in the life of this nondescript priest, despite the fact that it had been, for all intents and purposes, seemingly extinguished. So God still had a remnant who believed in his word and remained faithful. Zechariah, whose name incidentally means God remembers, is described here as being righteous in the sight of God. And what that means is that Zechariah has been imputed as righteous by God on the basis of God's grace, which I'm sure was evidenced in his faith. So that imputed righteousness indicates that unlike those in positions, most of them in the positions of leadership in the priesthood during that time, such as the Sadducees or those holding the office of the high priest or those who may be attempting to lay some claim on some kind of divine righteousness, such as the Pharisees, Zechariah is not basing his standing before God on his own abilities to fulfill the law, but rather on God's mercy and grace and the promise in the scriptures that God will provide a substitute to atone for his sin and to 
redeemed those who put their trust and faith, not in themselves, but in their God. And that's a promise of a coming Redeemer that's found throughout the Scriptures, perhaps nowhere more explicitly than in the servant of the Lord passages prophesied in Isaiah. There it explicitly states that this servant of the Lord for whom they were hoping and longing would come and he would take our sins upon himself and he would pay the penalty charged against us on account of them, not for himself, but for those who trusted in him. He would be crushed for our iniquities and he would be cut off from among the living for those of us who have gone astray. So despite this intense darkness in which he lived and despite the fact that the righteousness of Zechariah was very likely brought into serious question, in fact, by those of the religious community on account of the barrenness of he and his wife. Barrenness was one of the scriptural curses, you might recall, prescribed in the Torah for the unfaithful. So they would have been living under a cloud of suspicion in the sight of the community. But not only does it say that they were righteous in the sight of God, but that Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, nonetheless also remained faithful in their adherence to the external requirements of the law, as it states here. Although we know there is none, not one, who perfectly obeys the law, Zechariah and his wife probably did as good a job as any, which is saying quite a bit since they were both from priestly families. That means that every male in both families were themselves priests. They were surrounded by priests. Elizabeth, whose name could be translated as my God is my joy, was named after Aaron's wife. Aaron, by the way, was a high priest, the very first high priest ever in Israel. So we can imagine that if anyone would have known the law, they certainly would have. They would have known its requirements and their abilities to perform it. As much of it as they did indicates not only that they were the recipients of God's imputed grace in their justification before him, but they were also the recipients of God's, God's imparted grace in their sanctification before him, which is to be expected since one is never the recipient of the first without also being a recipient of the latter. And that would be what we call antinomianism, that is, free grace without any repentance. Whenever a person is truly regenerated before God, he's always also always turns from his sin because God gives him a new heart in which he, the requirements of the law no longer become burdensome, but rather they become a delight to do. They're sort of like second nature. So what Luke is showing us here is that the very same God who gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai was still at work in his people and still remained faithful to his covenant with Israel and the people of Israel, even though the leadership at that time of Israel had long been, in fact, capitulated uh, to the powers that appeared to be in control ostensibly and to the political correctness of the day. So the leadership of Israel's uh, their understanding of righteousness at that time was based merely on the externals and which we saw evidenced at least initially in the life of Saul before he was converted. After all, after Israel had returned from their Babylonian captivity, some four or 500 years previously, it would appear they had been cured of worship of idols that had come in the form of carved images. But there were still some very real idols that were controlling their hearts and kept them full from fully putting their trust in the one true God. Actually, the offices of the high priest had been controlled for some time uh, by the, uh, the overruling civilian authorities pretty much ever since uh, 
back in the second century BC when the high priest Onias III was assassinated and the Seleucid kings who installed at their at that time their own puppet priests who were not even of the Aaronic line and the administration of the temple was an extremely lucrative job besides for anyone to have. So I imagine the new idols that took up residence in their hearts during that period were pretty much those of uh, the idea of mammon, as Jesus mentioned, or money or material possessions. And this was all part of the intensifying darkness that had been encroaching upon the territory seemingly uh, ever since the last message was heard from one of God's prophets, which was in fact uh, close to 400 years ago at that time. And since then, God had been pretty much silent there was no word from God. There were no miracles from God, no angelic messengers, messengers rather from God, just total silence. <clears throat> Excuse me. This silence was all about to be shattered. The last prophet to be heard, by the way, was Malachi some 400 years earlier. <clears throat> were we to go back and look at Malachi's message, we'd see that the last thing he had to say was that the Lord was going to send Elijah, the prophet, to go before him. And just before that, in verse 2 of chapter 4 of Matthew, he says that the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Luke actually quotes that, or paraphrases it at the end of this chapter, verses 78 and 9. He says that the sunrise shall dawn upon us and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And this was the idea that the time had finally arrived. However, before the long-awaited Messiah could appear, it was still necessary for his forerunner to announce his arrival and prepare the way for him according to the scriptures. It was very, very important to identify who this forerunner was, as prophesied in the scriptures in both Malachi and Isaiah. Because if he knew who the forerunner was, then all he had to do was listen to what he said, what the forerunner would say, and who the forerunner said the Messiah would be, since that was probably the most important job he had. He was to go before the Messiah according to the scriptures uh, in order to, number one, prepare the way for him, and number two, to announce his arrival. In other words, to point people to him. Whoever said, whoever he said the Messiah was to be, that was how they would know who the Messiah would be. Therefore, since it was so important to have some way of identifying who this forerunner was to be, it was also necessary for him to have some kind of scriptural warrant for claiming to be who he said he was. And that's why it was necessary for his arrival to be attended with miracles, such as the miraculous appearance of the angel Gabriel in the temple announcing his birth. <clears throat> By the way, the performance of Zechariah on that day of making an offering uh, at the altar of incense in the temple was not something to sneeze at. That was not something that he had ever done before in his life. It was an extremely auspicious occasion for Zechariah. It was a very big deal for him. Although this incense offering was done actually twice a day, once in the morning and at the morning sacrifice and again in the evening at that sacrifice. This, however, was the only time in the life of Zechariah that he would have the honor and privilege of doing it. And in the process also, the only time of entering into the, the holy place of the temple. 
And that was the closest that he would ever get in his entire lifetime to the tangible manifest presence of the God of Israel. And he would never get to go in there again. And because there were so many priests ministering in the temple, the one who would perform this function always had to be chosen according to Lot or by Lot, according to his group. And uh, some priests, consequently, would never be selected. However, once you were selected, if you were, you would henceforth no longer be eligible to be chosen after that. The temples divided into different courts going from the outer chambers, chambers the most holy, to the most holy place. There's first the court on the very outside, the court of the Gentiles, and then there's the court of Israel where any Israelite may enter, and then there's the court of the Jews, only the male men, uh, men, Jewish men may enter. After that, there's the court of the priests, and then only the priests may enter. And then after that, you get the holy place where only a priest, one priest enters uh, in the morning, one in, in the evening. And then finally, you get to the most holy place where the, uh, only the high priest could enter once a year. So this was a great honor for Zechariah to be chosen, and it was at the time of the evening, I believe it was the evening sacrifice, because as the custom was, there was a great crowd gathered outside to pray while he went in. And he would simply take some coals from the altar of sacrifice, which was in the court just outside the holy place, and he would take some incense, which was represented by the, which represented actually the prayers of the people. The altar of incense was located on the inside of the holy place, and it was just outside the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And Zechariah's job was to just take some hot coals and put them on the altar of incense, and then pour the incense out onto the coals. And that would create this huge bill of smoke, which represented the prayers of the people. And then he would quickly leave, so not as to offer any personal offense to God. However, on this unique occasion, there was another person who appeared right there on the right side of the altar of incense, Zechariah, as you can imagine, his appearance there did nothing to calm the apprehension which Zechariah surely must have felt at the prospects of entering into the holy place to begin with. And at that moment, having absolutely nothing separating him from the Ark of the Covenant, in which the presence dwelt, then the veil, which was right there in front of him, closer than he'd ever been before, and as close as he would ever be allowed to get again. We can imagine... What probably happened was he had performed his functions and the smoke billows up. And then all of a sudden he sees, as the smoke dissipates somewhat, he sees this angel. So as if it appeared from the smoke, you might say. I'm not sure if that's the case, but I'm, that's the way I would imagine it to be. And so when the text tells us that he was troubled at the sight of the angel and fearful, that should not surprise us. The announcement of the angel accordingly is prefaced with the typical disclaimer that we have, don't be afraid, which is something that angels just seem to have to say whenever they appear in scriptures. Don't be afraid is always the first words just about out of their mouths, regardless of the circumstances, to whomever they may be appearing. We're not told, for instance, they said that when they appeared to the soldiers around the tomb of Jesus after he rose from the dead, you remember, but we are told that they were so fearful they appeared as dead men. That fear should be what the appearance of angels strikes in the hearts of men should not surprise us either, since 
role in which they will play at the end of the age when they are sent to round up everyone for the coming judgment. After all, that was one of the reasons why they were made in the first place. That should be a fearful thing that one should think about beforehand, I think. In this case, Gabriel is sent to break the silence of the word of God, which Israel has endured for the past five or four or five centuries at least now. It seems appropriate that Gabriel would be the one, frankly, to be sent, since he was also the one who appeared to Daniel some 530, 530 years previously and gave him the timetable for when the Messiah was to appear. To appear. And now he was just fulfilling that prophecy, which he'd been instrumental in personally delivering. And the message to Zechariah is about John, who will be born miraculously to Elizabeth in her old age, even probably close to 80 years old now. And this despite the fact that she was uh, barren up until then. And also how he will fulfill the role of Elijah in turning uh, the children of Israel back to their God and to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Who, interestingly, Gabriel equates here with the Lord. So here we see that the gospel writer recognizes from the very start the divinity of Jesus. Here, Zacharias is commanded to name his miracle child to be John. John is the anglicized version of Johan. Johan really simply means uh, the grace of Yahweh, or God's grace or favor. And Zechariah is given instructions regarding his upbringing. So here we see that John actually fulfills the prophecies of Malachi, which stipulate that Elijah was to come in advance of the Lord. So that means that Elijah's name at that time in Malachi's prophecy was used Uh, in the sense of his being really a prototype of the actual person who would then play the role of Elijah. So why do you think that uh, it was not fulfilled literally with the historical Elijah coming down from heaven and actually being the Lord's forerunner? After all, Gabriel, who was also around back then when Elijah was commissioned uh, to do his ministry, is still available to perform his function as messenger of God, as he does here. What do you think? Well, I submit to you that was simply because Elijah was really not in heaven at that time, but rather he was and is yet resting in the grave like every other human being who has ever lived and died and is now awaiting resurrection, which has just yet to occur. So it would have been impossible for him to fulfill that prophecy, literally, this side of the resurrection. Now, I know that this statement, if you heard me correctly, should provoke some questions, many of you. If you believe, as do so many evangelicals and Catholics today, that heaven is currently populated with all the saints of the ages, I want to challenge that belief on the basis of what the scriptures actually say. So send me your comments, send me your questions, and I'll be more than happy to address them in that regard. Well, Zachariah's response to the message of Gabriel is somewhat disappointing to say the least. I mean, it's clear that he has already been given, or he has already given up hope, any hope he may have ever ever had once that they will be able to conceive and have children. He probably, that's hope was pretty much dead in his heart for some time already, but you would have thought that this knowledge of the scriptures would have been sufficient for him to recognize the significance of what Gabriel had said to him. Besides, 
The fact that one does not normally encounter such angelic beings anywhere, let alone under such auspicious circumstances and in such a sacred setting, Zechariah certainly put his foot in his mouth. If ever anyone ever did, by questioning the authority of the angel or the message he delivered to him. And of course, considering the fact that he should have known better, such insolence could not go unchecked, no matter how much righteousness may have previously been thought to have. The consequences of Zechariah's lapse in faith here pronounced upon him by Gabriel may not seem at first to be that severe, that is, of simply losing his voice for the next year or so. But I think there's a good lesson to be learned here. It was his speech that got him into so much trouble to begin with. Consequently, the loss of his speech is a perfectly appropriate uh, penalty to pay. Secondly, the loss of his speech has now made it impossible for him to gain the justification in the eyes of the community he must have longed for for so long now in view of his and his wife's apparent barrenness. He could now say nothing in his own defense, which he surely must have wanted to say for a very long time, but now would have to wait at least until the arrival of his firstborn and only son. Then maybe he could at least continue to look forward to it. I would say it was a very appropriate, it was a very measured, it was a very expeditiously dispensed example of divine the divine administration of justice. And I'd not be I would not be surprised at all to find that this will be a foretaste of the justice we have yet to see administered more universally on the day when all our rewards are to be meted out. After all, the Bible says that we need to judge ourselves so that we will not be judged. Unfortunately for some, they do not take, I think, that admonition seriously enough. So what else does this tell us about angels and the implications which that has for us who look forward to the resurrection? I think it tells us that the power they possess is immense, greater than anything we've seen before. For instance, that he'd be able to just speak the word, and hence Zechariah was struck dumb, or moot at least, for precisely the considerable length of time he prescribed. Think about it. This is the very same kind of power which Jesus has offered to those who will be part of the resurrection of the righteous. We are to be like the angels. That's exactly what Jesus promised. So it would seem that people simply don't have a clue as to what's being offered to them. Elijah, or, or either rather, I should say, that or they just don't believe it. If only they'd be willing to repent and believe that, to repent of the trivialities they've so absorbed themselves in relative to what God is offering them, to call them the uh, things of this world trivialities if it is, if anything, an understatement. So if only we could have our eyes opened to what could be ours. There's no question that I think we would quickly repent. It was for the hope, remember, that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross while scorning its shame. Obviously, Jesus had a clearer picture of what that hope represented. So my question is, how about you? Do you have that hope today? It can be yours. Just look to Jesus and you will have it only you're willing to hold out. Until then, amen. Well, this is Kim Nicolaides with Advent Christian Voices, signing off once again. Look forward to seeing you next week.